Good morning, everyone. Morning, esteemed panelists and members of the audience. Welcome to today's Midpoint online discussion, sponsored by the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. At events of the Midpoint, we aim to get ahead of the everyday curve of current affairs to discuss the big issues in South Africa. We do this from a centrist, political perspective, in which we look for pragmatic policies and politics that lie between socialism and small state capitalism. As part of the Conrad Adenauer Foundation's set of publications, the Midpoint promotes democracy. Through our work, we contribute towards securing and increasing freedom, peace, and prosperity throughout the world. We invite you to sign up for our newsletter at www.themidpoint.org.za to hear about our future events. There is also a catalogue of former events which I rec recommend perusing. Midpoint's event events usually come with research work and publications, and these unpack the discussed issues in greater depth. At today's event, we will launch a new paper by Professor Nicola de Yaga titled The Return to History, The Erosion of Liberal Democracy, and the Rise of New Totalitarianism. Professor de Yaga has joined us today to walk us through the main ideas in the paper and their importance for liberal democracy in South Africa and globally. I would like to begin by saying a big thank you to our discussants today, Professor Nicola de Yaga and Professor Eric Kaufman. We appreciate you taking some time for us. I know it's a busy time of year. Everything's tying up. You're having to mark, you're having to write. It's fantastic that you're here for us. So I'd like to introduce our prestigious speakers, expert in the field. Nicola de Yaga holds a PhD in political science and is associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Stellenbosch University. She is the co-editor-in-chief of the international journal Commonwealth and Comparative, uh, sorry, Commonwealth and Comparative Politics. She's a nationally rated researcher, a fellow of the African Oxford Initiative at Oxford University, and a country expert since 2013 for VDEM. She's also formerly a research associate of the Transformation Research Unit, TRU, TRU was a research unit focused on projects dealing with transformations from autocracy to democracy and reverse. This topic is a very familiar space for Nicola. She has also edited two books, South African Politics, published by Oxford University Press, and Friend or Foe, Dominant Party Systems in Southern Africa, Lessons from the Devel Developing World, the co-editor, the renowned Professor Pierre Dutoy. She's published in several peer-reviewed journals, and I recommend having a look on the registration page for more detail. Joining Professor Diaga today is Professor Eric Kaufman. Eric Kaufman is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He is author of numerous books, including White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities in 2018. In 2010, the book was Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? In 2004, he published The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, and in 2007, The Orange Order. He is co-editor, amongst others, of Political Demography and editor of Rethinking Ethnicity, Majority Groups and Minority uh, Dominant Minorities. He's also written for The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Times of London, Newsweek, National Review, New Statesman, Financial Types, and other outlets. Eric Kaufman, it's a pleasure to have you online today. 
dialing in from London and with such a broad spectrum of experience, I look forward to seeing how we will engage with the paper by, by Nicola. So I look forward to today's discussion. In terms of the structure, uh, Nicola, I will hand the floor to you next to present your paper. Eric, I'll then ask you to respond, and then will you proceed to an open discussion, drawing on the Q&A. I ask the audience to please pose your questions in the chat room for that last section, and I will draw on them and bring them into conversation. So to begin, uh, Prof. Diago, would you please tell us about your paper? Thank you, Chris. So, uh, firstly, a, a thank you to you and to the Kronrad Arunar Stifting for, for hosting this and for having me here. And also a thank you to, to uh, Professor Eric Kaufman for coming. I appreciate you accepting the invitation and being part of this. So, perhaps I should start off with a bit of a disclaimer that this is the beginning of a research project. So, this is the first paper which is hopefully going to culminate in a book. So, that is the idea is that this is a thesis that I'm putting forward, an argument, a proposition, that um, and that maybe this paper is, is the start of that in terms of an outline of that proposition, which I will then expand into, into a book. The second aim of what I would like to achieve this morning is to put forward tools for analysis um, and to navigate and to help um, us um, political scientists, help my students, help um, the layman, to navigate the murky political waters in which we find ourselves. I think often I hear people speaking and acting in ways um, that are rather undemocratic and yet are put forward as democratic. And I think what has happened is, is that we've come so far along the way that we have become too familiar with it. what is a democracy that we are unable to distinguish between different regime types. So that's my second aim is to actually help you know, distinguish between the regime types. So I'm going to bounce off Francis Fukuyama's um, thesis and his argument and his proposition, which was the um, the end of history. So I wonder if, um, Chris, we can start the slides. Thanks. And they are starting okay. now. We need to just go back to the beginning. There we, go. we haven't yet hit the end, so one more thing. One more. There we go. <laughs> so, um, so I'm I'm bouncing off Francis Fukuyama's thesis where he argued for the end of history, um, and in the same way, in his approach, which he took a bigger picture approach and a bigger picture view. I'm trying to do this with my argument of the return to history. So it's really a look at the current zeitgeist and what I mean by the current culture, the culture of our times, and trying to understand this. So, Chris, if we can move now to the end of history. So Francis Fukuyama um, argued that the end of the Cold War would signal for him the unabashed victory of economic and political liberalism. The 20th century had been characterized by the rise and fall of totalitarian regimes and the accompanying democidal death by government of over 100 million people. Writing just prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, Francis Fukuyama had optimistically presented the thesis of the end of history. His argument was that humanity had reached the end point of his ideological journey with the victory in the realm of ideas 
is still to be attained in the real world. So Fukuyama was actually building on, on the uh, German philosopher Friedrich Hegel's defi definition of history as a progression of human societies, that human societies were actually progressing, they were actually evolving. Um, and where he was saying that we had evolved towards the end of history, which was um, the, the liberal democracy as a political regime type. So he said that there were overarching also values which laid the foundations for broader ideologies. We called this the sphere of consciousness. And the sphere of consciousness or ideas and ideologies would eventually materialize in the real world or the material world. So it was ideas or the sphere of consciousness which would drive material outcomes. We see the 1970s with the third wave of democratization spreading from Portugal, Latin America, Eastern Europe, and into Africa. It really appeared that Fukuyama's theory was manifesting in the real world. So we can move to the next one, please, Chris. So I argue differently that it may have initially looked like we were moving towards the end of history. I want to argue that we might be seeing a reverse and a change and a regress and the return to history. So my intention is not to deeply engage with Fukuyama's theory, but rather to bounce off it and present my own thesis, the return to history. Saying that society does not always progress in a linear fashion, but can also revert and return. But similar to Fukuyama, I argue that the gauge or thermometer for looking for change is in values, the culture, and prevalent, prevalent ideologies. Also in agreement with Fukuyama, I move from the assumption, which actually has much empirical backing, that a liberal democracy remains the imperfect ideal or the end of history. But we still remain as humans susceptible for elites to the lure of power and unhindered control, and for society to the promise of the, the perfect, the utopia. So what I'm arguing is that firstly, I'm looking at what is shifting in terms of norms and values, the sphere of consciousness, and saying that this first leads, this, the shift happens in, in the values and the norms before we start to see a change in regimes. So what do I mean by, by a regime? A regime is a means of organizing the relationship between the states and between society. The regime change is a fundamental change in the norms central to the nature of a regime. So if we see that change in norms, we should start to start to expect a change in regime. So what I'm not saying is that we are in a place of totalitarianism, but I am saying that there might be elements which indicate we are moving in that direction. If there is a global decline in the liberal democratic regime, it presupposes an initial decline in its foundational values, as well as a change in state-society relations. Chris. Others would also agree, those who come from the period of totalitarian systems, so Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of the Gulag Archipelago, um, he wrote the following, there always is this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. 
So Solzhenitsyn was a survivor of, of the gulags or the Soviet Union gulags, um, and he was obviously a dissident. Martin Malia, who is an historian of um, socialism in Russia, wrote the following, the threat of totalitarianism did not disappear with the Soviet Union. Rather, utopian attempts to enforce social and economic equality, either in the name of mankind's common good or for the liberation of some oppressed group will continue as long as inequality exists in the world. Go to the next one. So let's start with the imperfect ideal, uh, liberal democracy. So liberal democracy comes from a classical liberal tradition. So I first want to point that out. This is not the American idea of uh, progressive liberal democracy, but classical liberal democracy in the sense of a limited state and protecting individual liberties. So its foundation is in negative freedom. And actually the forerunner to liberal democracy is in the 17th and 18th century, what we call protective democracy where democracy was seen less as a mechanism through which people could participate than as a device through which people could protect themselves from the encroachment of political authority. So it was really a response to this overextensive monarchical rule into people's private lives, and it was a pushing back of political authority. Democracy, unlike other regimes, is a system of separations. For without them, there will be no liberty. One of the key separations which distinguishes a liberal democratic regime from other regime types is the separation between the public and the private sphere. So where the public is, is limited and then the private sphere or the personal is protected. And the importance of this, or to, to ensure this, there has to be restraint in the government intruding into, into the personal. It also requires an impartial state. So a state that doesn't act for special interests, but acts in the broader neutral and for broader public interests. It's also premised very importantly on innate human value. So every human being, irrespective of social category, is considered to be valuable. And this is where you get the value of equality, equality of value, and from that emanates liberty, people's freedom to choose and make their own decisions. So if we go to the next one. Thanks. So what we're seeing globally is a decline in liberal democracy, and many have actually acknowledged this and seen this. So um, according to VDEM, there were 44 liberal democracies in 2014, and this declined to 32 in 2020. Freedom House which measures uh, democracy in terms of civil liberties and political liberties, and other words, negative freedom. Um, they noted 2021 being the 16th consecutive year of the decline of global freedom. Samuel Huntington, the author of um, the, the Three Ways of Democratization, he argued that freedom is intricately linked with democracy. So it's a core value. Eight out of 10 people currently live in countries that are ranked as not free or partly free. So there is definitely something happening. So that's democracy or liberal democracy. What is the other side? So the other side we would call totalitarianism. Thanks, Chris. And 
And I would call where democracy can be the, um, the imperfect ideal. Uh, totalitarianism is that false utopia, that promise of utopia. The opposite of liberal is actually not conservative. The opposite of liberal is total, total control, total control, the political, the economic, and the social. It is a regime which seeks complete domination of society by the state, where the public sphere completely intrudes into the private sphere. All institutions apart from the state are banned all institutions which are not officially approved by the state are encroached upon and controlled. Its underlying value is positive freedom. And what we mean by this, the, the, the terms are problematic. Um, the positive freedom means an extensive state to socially control production so as to distribute material goods for supposedly for the common, the common good. Um, it's centralized power under elite control. So where liberal implies limited and devolved power, total implies unlimited and centralized control. These 20th century totalitarian regimes were characterized by the progressive destruction of independent civil society, centralized and controlled education systems, and a single moral code. The ideological bedrocks were fascism and communism. Leszek Kolowski, a Polish philosopher and initially an ardent communist, wrote the following in referring to fascism and communism, that both were forms of totalitarian socialism. While the former was nationalist in its aspiration, the latter was internationalist. The both converged around the idea of social control of production and distribution of material goods for the supposed common good. At its core, a totalitarian regime is a social re-engineering of society in accordance with and towards a supposed utopian vision. Unlike liberal democracies where core value is the innate value of every person, the individual in a totalitarian system is sacrificed for specified and identified groups. Chris, if we can go to the next one. So a totalitarian system bounces off the idea of utopians that that perfection is possible. You can create the perfect society. If you can control and engineer people, you can create the ideal perfect society. So its goal is the transformation of society, not just political or economic, but transformation into the innermost being of people through the most personal, the heart and the mind. And that's why I said it's that social re-engineering of society by the state in accordance with the utopian vision. So here we also start to see um, collective conformity. Complete control is only possible when it succeeds in eliminating any form of resistance. And this is both natural and mental reality. That's why endemic to totalitarian regimes as identified by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Hannah Arendt and George Orwell, as well as others was lies. The root of totalitarianism at the individual level was to knowingly falsify your speech and action through compelling society to repeat falsehoods that caused them to cast aside their integrity and bound them to the leader, the party and the regime by shame and complicity. Totalitarianism requires complete control and is only achieved through that eliminating of all forms of resistance, even in terms of 
of mental and thought resistance. So what happens in the place of truth are lies and this then is replaced by, by power. It's pointedly illustrated in the words of George Orwell in his classic 1984. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. So what I'm arguing is that we're seeing a value shift and, and thus the return to history, the return to this period of time, but potentially return to this period of time of totalitarianism. So if we understand regimes as organizing the relationship between the state and society, we need to understand what is happening in terms of values and norms in terms of the state and society. So in terms of the state, the value shift, I argue, is that from negative freedom, negative in terms of a restraint on the state, a pushing back and saying, this is the personal, this is the private, this is not the area that you come into. And, and this is, we protect the individual, the individual liberties. So it's a limiting and negative freedom in the sense of a limiting of the extent of the state to a shift towards a positive or positive rights when the expectations of the state have increased to an extensive state that the state must now provide extensive social and economic benefits. With this, a change in terms of understanding of justice, where justice in the state is supposed to be impartial, and I use this illustration of, of uh, the Lady Justice, where the first one she wears the blind to indicate that when she executes justice, it's on the basis of non-partisanship non and impartiality. So she doesn't judge in terms of any type of social categories or identities, but just on terms of the, the, the benefit or of the case itself. But we move towards social justice, where the state is now expected to act on a partisan basis, where the one, the first one is good governance, the other one is now a partisan state, state expected to act in partisan interests or group interests, to actually elevate certain interests and certain groups above other other groups, as, as we saw in historical cases, for example, with the communist system, where um, certain classes were considered to be more important, more valuable, good, um, versus other classes. So your um, proletariat were, were, or the working class was, was the good class, which needed to be given partisan interest, needed to be elevated by the state. And that's why they also moved towards the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat by the state. And then we see the shift in terms of society from the valuing and the innate valuing and the equality of every individual to the collective or to the specified group. So instead of identities, individual identities, identities move into group identities or what we're starting to see as identity politics, certain groups being elevated above other groups and groups and group identities more important than the innate value of, of, of humans. Then also with liberal democracy, a key defining feature was the public-private divide to a shift towards an elevating of the public or the so-called social over the private, an intrusion into, into the private sphere. And then from pluralism, where you recognize the individual and you recognize liberty and equality, there will necessarily be pluralism and diversity and disagreement to an expectation of conformity of a single ideology and single belief systems which are being promoted and expected. So what is, or what is driving this? So I want to put forward um, that there are two drivers or two possible explanations. This is 
there's no, by no means is this limited to this. But um, so I'm just going to highlight two. So the first driver, and Chris, if we can go to the next one, please, is in terms of understanding the state relationship. And this is a move from that negative right to the positive rights. And where did this happen? So I assert that there's been a value shift that started with the aftermath of, of from the Second World War. And this was the negotiations around the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So the seeds were sown in this period of time where um, with the Soviet Union, where they were negotiating, they negotiated for economic, social, and cultural rights, where actually your Western powers were negotiating for um, your civil and political liberties. So we ended up with two uh, international covenants. The one was civil and political liberties and the other with economic, social, and cultural rights. The one driven by your Western nations and the other driven by the Soviet Union. What is interesting is that this United Nations uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights was actually never signed by the Soviet Union because they felt that that um, they firstly didn't want to accede to the civil and political rights. And then secondly, they didn't were unhappy that the, these other economic, social, and cultural rights would be considered secondary to civil and political rights. But the Western nations embraced this. They embraced these rights and they embraced this formidable list of obligations which would be placed on the states. Social and economic rights are unmistakable in their social orientation and have led to the extensive expansion of the state um, into what we see as welfare manifestations. So this extensive state. So it might not have been deliberate, but we see the Soviet Union having left behind the seeds for the return to socialism. The other shift or driver of the shift, if we can move to the next one, please, Chris. In terms of shifting ideas of the society and transforming society, you remember one of the key aspects of a totalitarianism is, is that drive into society, that, 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 that blurring of the, the, the divide between the public and the private, um, and so that, and that, that elevating of group interests over the individual. And I would argue that this is actually happening within the academia itself and is being driven through the academia that there's a fairly long history of this, but it's now become very prevalent within inside the academia and is moving outside the academia into the public area as well as into private institutions. We see this with the spread of critical theory. While called theory, it is actually not a theory. Theories are presentations of possible explanations for a phenomenon. Theories can be tested, should be tested, and are used to better understand or explain the world or a trend. They attempt to understand what is. On the other hand, critical theory presents rather what should be. So it's normative, it's prescriptive. Critical theory does not seek to understand what is. It does not seek to do empirical research, but it seeks to rather transform society in terms of norms and values. So it moves, critical theory moves from the assumption of systemic um, oppression. It is a philosophy born out of German idealism and is tied to the critical philosophy of Karl Marx. Everything is seen and viewed and analyzed through the prism of power. 
It holds that every society is divided into those who have power and those who do not. And those who have power are always going to oppress those who do not. These categories are based on group identities and expansion going beyond Marx's category of class and economic status to include race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, physical ability, age, weight, and many other classifications. And so what is set up is a matrix of oppression where the members of the first group, those who have power, are considered to be permanently privileged and to permanently perpetuate various actions of oppression against the other group. The second group of members are then permanently considered to be victims, disadvantaged, and deliberately are, are deliberately and consistently oppressed. So the idea of critical theory is to supposedly disrupt society, to transform the current structures and norms of society. The existing status quo is taken to cons- constitute as an oppressive state of affairs and thus it calls for the supposed hegemonic power arrangement to be dismantled and culture rearranged. To do so, it ironically aims to set up its own hierarchy of power just inverted. So it removes all norms of trust, love, charity, expertise, or social cohesion, and it says everything is because of power and oppression. It thus attempts to centralize power around the state, and what we're starting to see, and why I call it new, um, new totalitarianism, is that there, it translates into a social activism, and where the, um, through the academias, it, which is now also becoming more social activist rather than, than studying for truth and trying to understand truth, this then moves into and shifts into social activists um, uh, maneuvering and lobbying institutions to promote um, and transform society in accordance with the critical theory ideas. So social activists use the public and even private institutions. We see this with diversity training uh, to disrupt norms of society, in other words, to transform hearts and minds. It was interest was the title of the 2022 Socialist Conference in Chicago, which was Change Everything. We'll go to the next one. So I'm really wrapping up here my argument and I realize that there are perhaps points and arguments that I've said which have perhaps rattled some of your own ideas. I think much of what has been uh, the terms that we hear in society are have been um, normalized, and that is the whole point of it. And um, and there has been a capturing of of um, should we say the, the 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 narrative. So I am also trying to um, hoping that that you begin to engage with this. So so here's a, a summary of of what it was that I tried to to put forward was that there are key ideas which help us to distinguish between these two regime types. But the liberal democracy is the innate human value. It is fallible, but it should not be controlled. It should rather be, we also, those who go into positions of power, they are also fallible and therefore political power should be limited and we need a dispersion of power in general. So various centers and spheres of authority and various centers of power, civil society, political society, economic society. On the other side, the key idea of a new totalitarianism is that that there are utopian ideals, that human nature can and should be controlled and perfected, and we need to do this through a centralized political power. 
and an elite. Key values of liberal democracy are equality of every human and liberty. For new totalitarianism, it's social justice and equity, equality of outcome, not equality of, of value. Um, the innate value of every individual is a key value of liberal democracy, whereas with new totalitarian social groups should be hierarchically categorized into oppressor and oppressor according to social categories. Um, with state society relations, the one is founded on negative freedom, restrained state power, whereas with new totalitarianism, it's positive freedom, extensive or global state power. In terms of the academia, the first manifests in terms of empirical research. What does it tell us? And we need to start asking ourselves again, what is the purpose of a university? Is it to understand what is? And if it is to understand what is, it's a recognition that we will never fully know. So there's debates, there's discussion, there's free speech, there's disagreement, there's agreeing to disagree. But if it manifests in terms of normative research, in terms of seeking to transform society according to what is, we start to begin to see the cancelling. We start to begin to see a, a single ideology, a single belief system and a promoting of that and an, an inability to engage and discuss. So the underlying ideology of the first classical liberalism, the underlying ideology of other is Marxism and fascism. So my argument is that we started to see a value shift in the spheres of consciousness, a return to history. And in the pursuit of modern day utopias, we may have forgotten that there are historical lessons we should be reminded of. And I leave it at that. Thank you very much, Nicola. Um, I think that last table in particular is fruit for a lot of discussion, um, not just during this event, but possibly afterwards. And I look forward to the, the longer research that you're going to do into as well. So I'm going to close the slide now uh, and hand over to Eric Kaufman to, to talk about his response. I can, of course, always pull up the slide again if it is useful for discussion. But for now, I'm going to stop that. And uh, Eric, I hand the floor to you. Fantastic, Christian, and, and thanks, Nicola. I um, I very much appreciate the opportunity to read this this fascinating paper, and I uh, um, I found it uh, extremely interesting. Commending uh, Nicola's work here, so I, I want to begin uh, by saying that the paper. First of all, it makes a number of, of excellent points. I mean, the first is it is a, a very nice encapsulation of the threat of utopian forms of what Berlin called positive liberty. Uh, and, and this idea, particularly socialism, which is that it's not about negative liberty, that, that is a kind of procedural liberalism that's based on toleration of individuals uh, with a sphere of rights, but rather um, of imposing a particular blueprint onto society, a, a version of the good life that all must adopt. So it becomes illiberal, ironically, uh, this form of positive liberty, liberty which I think Berlin uh, makes clear that the dangers of this positive liberalism. Um, so that shift from negative to positive liberalism is really a, a catalog very well in Nicholas' paper. Um, and so, and how these have since reconstituted themselves from a more economic-based Marxian socialism to a more cultural form of socialism, what I call cultural socialism, um, and in, in terms of critical theory uh, or critical social justice theory uh, and the um, associated woke movement that is centered in academia, but has since uh, migrated to other parts of society. Um, 
the paper has an excellent job of, of drawing on um, classical writings of Solzhenitsyn, um, of Orwell, and others uh, on what happens when you elevate positive liberty over, over negative liberty, and when utopianism trumps that classical liberalism, it leads very quickly to this idea of totalitarianism, which is, as Nicola mentioned, different from authoritarianism. It, it attempts to control um, civil society in the private sphere, and it actually moves from simply physical control to sort of thought control as well, which Orwell talked about and Hannah Arendt as well. Um, Nicholas, correct to point then to this shift to positive liberalism as the source of the problem and that this has had a strong allure to intellectuals in the past and it continues to have a strong lure to intellectuals in the present. Uh, the meaning of terms such as rights and freedoms has, have been corrupted. The meaning of words have been changed. Uh, so, you know, for example, redistribution of wealth is talked about as kind of a right and as a kind of freedom, um, rather than simply being honest and suggesting that this is an abrogation of rights in order to advance another social goal. And they, we may agree with a certain amount of that, and I would agree with a certain amount of uh, welfare state, but let's not pretend that that's uh, an increase in, in individual liberty. Um, it's a trade-off that, that we make as part of the good society. Um, and, and what Nicola shows is that modern, the, the, the modern woke movement shares, or, or the critical theory and modern wokery shares that same focus on uh, socialist utopianism, on, on positive liberalism, albeit transmuted into a cultural form, and shows how the critical theorists actually in some ways followed on via Marcuse and others, with the failure of class-based economic socialism, they um, pivoted to identitarian forms of um, socialism and positive liberalism, uh, with an aim of changing the cultural consciousness of the population. I should also add that, that I really like the way Nicola also brings in the global context and the uh, decline in, in measures of liberal democracy around the world in the past 16 years. Now, there are people who might criticize Freedom House in particular, less so VDEM, um, and whether and to what extent the coding uh, does reflect these actual change. But I think, I think there is a view certainly that the momentum towards increased liberal democratization has has certainly stalled, if not reversed. So I think this is a, this is very useful context, I think, for um, what Nicola is talking about that's occurring in the West. So that the developments at the heart of the Western cultural elite uh, seem to be having a corollary in terms of the return of history uh, outside the West with this regression in terms of the back, uh, backsliding in liberal democracy. So um, now I do want, in the interest of not agreeing 100%, I want to sort of <laughs> try, try and raise some uh, some areas of difference. And I think what, actually one of the most important is our view of the role of civil society and pluralism vis-a-vis -vis the state. Uh, cultural socialism. Um, sorry, just a second. I seem to have lost. Yeah, great. Uh, what I see in cultural socialism, it stems more from the bottom up than the top down. So unlike, for example, Soviet communism, uh, where the state was to in total control of, of society or 
uh, fascist Italy, for example, with the Nazis. Um, what we have here is what I call emergent authoritarianism, in which um, you have a belief system which is spread on social media, peer-to-peer, um, in which illiberal activists then target intermediate institutions, such as universities uh, or the health service or publishers or newspapers, uh, through activism, and they pressure these institute, these private, often private, but sometimes uh, public institutions like universities or museums are pressured um, to crack down on individuals who di- who dissent. So the pressure is coming from below rather than from the state, at least in the first phase. Um, and so the idea of intermediate institutions uh, being a check on the power of the state in that classical liberal view, I think is not particularly relevant for what we're facing. I mean, it is partly relevant, but I also think it's in some ways not relevant because what we're facing is what Jonathan Turley of George Washington University called private censorship. And uh, John Stuart Mill also talks about uh, the role of social norms as being in many ways more repressive even than government as, as a threat to liberty. And so these intermediate institutions practicing a sort of administrative private censorship, whether this be tech firms, whether this be universities, um, these are what are driving uh, a lot of the cancellation. Uh, for example, this the well-documented increase in the number of targetings of professors to get them fired, uh, or, or generally um, trying to cancel people from their jobs, trying to shut down speech through no platforming. This is largely driven by I would argue, um, hot activism from below, putting pressure on intermediate institutions. Not only that, now, of course, it is possible that these activists and the institutions they capture can then in turn try and penetrate government and try and sort of take over governing apparatuses. Uh, So we have in Canada, where perhaps this process is furthest advanced, or in Scotland, attempts uh, to police online speech, um, which are extremely draconian, so it won't be possible, for example, to express the opinion that, let's say, a woman is an adult human female, that would be constitute a uh, constitute hate speech under which you can be prosecuted. That's an example of, of what I mean by where, where the, this emergent authoritarianism reaches up into the state, and then, yes, the state then becomes an engine of, of this uh, totalitarianism. But what I would say is, you know, even though the, the state is involved in the criminalization of speech or even the implementation of unconscious bias and, and diversity training, which tries to police individuals' thoughts and, and assign guilt even to unconscious activity, um, I think the bigger problem here is this private censorship and the peer-to-peer uh, moral absolutism, which we see very strongly, by the way, amongst the youngest generation, just to give you some numbers from some surveys I've conducted. Uh, if we take J.K. Rowling, um, if, if you ask whether J.K. Rowling should be dropped by her publisher in, amongst young uh, British people, 18 to 25, they split roughly evenly between those who want to see her dropped by her publisher and those who say, no, she shouldn't be dropped. Whereas the over 50s, it's 85% no, 5% yes. So we've got an emerging uh, generation which is much more morally absolutist. Um, a paper by Jack Citron and Dennis Chong and Morris Levy at the University of Southern California shows tracking this, this data in the general social survey that there's been a shift towards moral absolutism 
that is uh, generational. It's not to do with age, it's to do with generation. Uh, and I think this is the biggest threat that we're facing because they will then enter the workforce, put pressure on their organizations to censor speech. And then, per now, government ironically is actually one of the last institutions that can serve as a check on this private censorship. And so ironically, the government, which is elected, it's the only institution that those who oppose this cultural socialism can hope to control, um, may actually be our best bet in terms of trying to contain private censorship. Uh, and so, and the UK's higher education freedom of speech bill, uh, which involves um, government regulation of, of universities' ability to censor speech, is an example of what I'm talking about, where government action can be used uh, to prevent these institutions from clamping down on the freedom of individuals. Um, so I would just sort of inject a cautionary note about, about pluralism and about the role of these other civil society institutions, which I think are actually the driving force behind the kind of cultural socialism um, we're seeing. The other, I just one other last point, which is really to do with the uh, intellectual history. Um, and I agree that that we this this track from socialism to Marcuse and critical theory is is very important. Um, but equally, I wouldn't neglect a, a more sort of banal form of cultural socialism, which appears as early as the mid-1960s, and you talk about sensitivity training, affirmative action, um, hostile environment, all of these disparate impact, all of these terms become part of the lexicon in the 1970s, 60s and 70s in the U.S. Um, and this idea of equal result is part of Lyndon Johnson's Howard University speech in 1965, informs Supreme Court jurisprudence, informs the new diversity training programs, and also the rise of a discourse of um, what we could call a kind of therapeutic humanism, ideas of bullying, prejudice, trauma, emotional safety, the expansion of the meaning of these terms. That's all happening in the in the 1970s and 80s uh, and, and 90s. And this sort of banal kind of view that you've got to be hypersensitive to historically marginalized groups, we've got to have equal results, that isn't necessarily coming from that radical socialist impulse, but it's kind of coming from this more, oh, we've got to be nice and sensitive to people who've had a hard time. And that sort of creeping, um, sort of softer, more banal kind of tissue of public morality uh, is then used as, as a pretext for saying, well, any speech that offends anybody must be shut down. And it's not explicitly something that comes out of, I mean, yes, you can trace it in Marcuse with repressive tolerance, but I'm not sure it's got such an intellectual origin. I think it's got more of a sort of more banal uh, origin, um, not so much rooted in a utopian vision as just in this um, creeping sort of therapeutic approach to society, which, which stems, just comes in gradually. So I'm going to end it there um, and uh, look forward to your questions and comments. Thanks. Yeah, thank, thank you, Eric. Uh, you've just generated so much notes. It's uh, <laughs> a bit outrageous. And you can see there's also a bunch of questions coming through. I'm going to be a little bit selective because we are running out of time a little bit. Um, but I'm going to pass it to Nicola first. Uh, there's a question here around South Africa being 28 years into democracy. And uh, often when we speak about South Africa, we say we have the most modern liberal democratic constitution in the world. And it's full of obligations upon the state to provide water, electricity, rights. Now, without being extreme, um, 
how much of a liberal democratic perspective would you apply to the South African constitution? How would you gauge it? Is the South African constitution less democratic than we usually sell it? It's, um, yeah, thanks so much for the question. And Eric, thanks so much for those points. I've also taken some copious notes. So um, I, I, if I can quickly, just a quick response on, on Eric's point before I get to this question, if you don't mind. Um, you, you, you're right 100% that there is something more than the states. It's not just being driven by the state. So it's not, that's why I added the new, because there's something else happening. Um, and it's, it's, it feels like they're lobbyists. And I think I haven't put this strongly enough through, through the paper, but there are lobbyists that are, are, are moving and using and changing and shifting policy. So it's less some kind of uh, overarching leader that is driving his or her vision into society then it is definitely, I would say, social movements, perhaps less civil society than social movements that are lobbying and using the state to actually implement policy. I mean, we see it in South Africa around the education system and certain education policies that are, are being definitely driven by lobbyists. So um, I agree with you, with you there, 100%. Um, in terms of, of South Africa's, yes, so South Africa's, um, our constitution is, is lauded for being very progressive and progressive in the sense of including a rather extensive positive rights. So, um, it's, it's, it is probably one of the reasons why, um, there is a lot of discontent in South Africa because it really promises a whole lot, which simply cannot be, um, achieved, uh, especially when you look at a country with a 40% unemployment rate and with, um, yes, everybody pays value-added tax, but in terms of income tax, less than 5% are qualified in terms of paying tax. So it's a, it's a heavily um, skewed economic society with um, 80% contributing to the, the tax, but, I mean, 10% contributing to the tax base, but 80% being redistributed. So it's it's very lofty in its goals, um, but these are the positive uh, rights. This expectation that the state will be the distributor of social benefit and social good. Um, and that's why it also breeds discontent um, because there's, an, uh, there's this uh, substantive as opposed to intrinsic um, understanding of democracy, substantive in terms of what does democracy give me? You know, democracy should give me material benefit. It should be giving me a house, give me work. It, and, and this, these expectations cannot actually simply be met as opposed to an intrinsic understanding of democracy. And that would be your, your negative, based on your negative freedom, that, that it's procedural. It, it provides freedoms and allows for people inside the system to thrive, but it's not the expectation that the state ensures that you thrive through material benefits. So, um, yes, I, is, is South Africa a liberal democracy? I mean, there's obviously elements of it in the constitution. We do protect individual rights. There are human rights. Human rights are embedded inside of our constitution, but they are extensive. So it goes from, from the negative into the positive and it's extensive. And can I also just say that there may be also a little bit of a saving grace. I know it's a, it's kind of seeing the silver lining in the gray in South Africa is that, that, that there is a, um, almost a benefit that we are, don't have the state that is completely capable to, to achieve all those goals. Um, in that it actually creates independence of society. We, we have a culture of, of, um, 
of we make a plan. South Africans make a plan because we cannot depend on the state. Um, and I think that's actually something that can be quite positive. So the first time I've heard of a dysfunctional state being described <laughs> as a positive. <laughs> Thank you, Nicola. Um, yes, you know, I'm, I'm being cheeky in questioning the, the role of South Africa's constitution. Uh, Eric, you spoke about the the fact that this was really an emerging process from the 1960s, 1970s, you already see the the beginning of this. And the Suffering Constitution came out of the early 90s. Um, so we're already a bit talking about the past in a long way. It feels like it's an accelerating phenomenon. Would you comment a little bit on how technology may be affecting this? Because it does feel like every year it's becoming more and more of a topic. Well, yeah. So I think, I mean, I've always had the view that we have what we call wokeness or cultural socialism is less to do with a qualitative change of ideas and much more to do with a quantitative scaling up of the number of activists, the number of the, the supply of people who, who believe in this ideology. Um, and, you know, more graduates, more academics producing more graduates. Um, and so you get this scaling up. Now, if you look at terms like racism and sexism, uh, in academic abstracts, there was a study by somebody that uh, I've worked with, David Rosado, uses big data methods, looked at 75 million academic abstracts and 25 million news articles in a big data analysis. And yeah, you can see that, that these terms are being used in academia heavily already by the 70s and 80s. Um, the, the media is using them at a much lower rate. And then suddenly we hit the mid-2010s and the media just converges with academia. And that's telling us that these ideas migrate off campus in a big way in the mid-2010s, which I think is what's occurred. Uh, why has that occurred? Well, yes, social media um, allows academics and journalists to interact much more closely than before, number one. Uh, number two, of course, a shift in the media model away from classified advertising and fact-based journalism to opinionated, clickbait journalism where eyeballs are what drive income, not, um, you know, a classified ads model. And that, Ezra Klein talks about that in his book, Why We're Polarized. Why is, and you can see it in other ways, you know, use of terms like radical and extreme right or left have gone up continuously since that period. So, so the media has really shifted. Um, and I think social media has been part of that process. So it's simply fed these radical ideas, which were already common in academia, into the broader public sphere. So, so given that, um, I mean, we often speak about the politics of grievance as a very effective marketing strategy. Um, but if we turn towards universities having gotten there, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, these are the brightest and the best in society. Why have they embraced these ideas so strongly? Perhaps, Nicola, you can <laughs> elucidate a little bit. Where does this come from that the clever clogs are following this direction? And, and what can we do to make universities a bit more varied in their perspective if they've really been captured by this idea of cultural socialism? So this is actually not new. Um, if we actually even look prior in the beginning of, of your totalitarian systems, a lot of it was also also driven by the intellectual elite, who um, someone like a Karl Marx, who who saw the um, ravages of industrialization and the impact that it had on society. So it, yeah, often these ideas are driven with a genuine concern. Um, and, but then it's this move towards, I don't know, that the state will solve this 
and if we can just socially redistribute, um, then it will be better. So I, I don't think there's necessarily always a kind of a, a menacing uh, motivation behind it. I think the other thing is just the shift in terms of the academia and uh, the work of Jonathan Haidt speaks to this, where um, the academia used to be uh, more rounded in terms of diversity of thought. And the, the point of diversity of thought is that when there's engagement, we're supposed to rub off on each other. And what has happened, I think also from the, it's more recent, you know, it's perhaps in the last 20 years or so, where, where the, you'd have um, in, in academia, it, it kind of, Two on the on the on the left to one on the right. And now we're sitting at about twenty-seven on the left, and in the social sciences, he says about sixty on the left to about one on the right, and and it's not allowing for that diversity of thought. So um, so the universities are becoming a little bit like you know echo chambers, and those who who do disagree are becoming um, more unwilling to do so, and um, so so we're starting to see the single thinking coming through the academia and into the students and obviously that permeates into the media and um, into society and so forth and so there's also this, this culture of agreeing to disagree um, which should have actually emanated the debate discussion and you know having ideas that perhaps you don't agree with um, is now being shut down and starting at the academia where this should have been happening and now this kind of permeates into society. No, I'm just add that, that part of what wokeness is about is a, a making sacred or sacralization of historically marginalized race, gender and sexual identity groups. So because of that sacralization process, there's a very religious response to profaning the mm -hmm. sacred, right? So if you, uh, if you come up with, if your speech or your research or, or even if the truth is offensive, to a historically marginalized group, then if your top value is not offending in any possible way a, a member of a historically marginalized group, that trumps truth and it trumps freedom. And that's sort of the situation that we find ourselves in now in uh, much of sort of social science, humanities, academia with regard to certain topics. Last thing I'd say to you, you know, clever people, we, we know from psychology research, that's no uh, insulation against believing in conspiracy theories, believing in um, nonsense in a way, and, and in a way because more intelligent people are more political and being more political drives motivated reasoning, which sort of distorts one's view of the world. Actually, uh, very intelligent people are in many ways more susceptible to some of these ideologies and always have been. And young people are as well. You just have to look at Mao's uh, cultural revolution and who was who was leading that. It was young red guards, right? So it reminds me of that, that trite saying, that old saying, uh, it's only thing sadder than a 20-year-old who is a communist is a 50-year-old who is still a communist. Right. <laughs> so it is trite and it is probably no longer relevant in the time of social media where ideas do spread through a population and get stuck. And, um, we have a comment here around PR. Is liberalism very bad at promoting itself, classical liberalism? Because it seems to have been associated with fast capitalism, with, with small state capitalism, with the rich getting richer, the poor state getting exploited. Where does that narrative need to change from the perspective of classical libertarianism to, to defend the idea of everyone being equal and that not meaning that your 
innate value is defined by your skin color or your gender or your sex, but rather that mm -hmm. it is simply a nature of being a human. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I'll leave that to both of you as, as a closing idea. Uh, what do mm -hmm. we need to do in terms of changing the narrative in society? Well, well I think I would just add very quickly that, that you know, corporations and capitalism have, have been almost as keen to jump on this as the anarchists and socialists. So it's it's something pretty orthogonal. Uh, you know, the woke corporation is, is sort of a major factor now. Um, so I, um, I just think it's much harder, you know, when liberals were opposing conservatives, you know, in terms of the sexual revolution or whatever, it was just much easier. They were working with the left. They found that more comfortable. Now when uh, illiberalism is coming from the left, a lot of people who were, you know, you just have to look at the American Civil Liberties Union. They are not willing to sort of follow liberalism where it leads anymore. So, yeah, I don't know how you, I think we need better stories in a way. We need to sort of look at the, teach children more about the excesses of illiberalism in, in the past with, as, as associated with utopian ideals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think there's, there's the importance of history and um, people have forgotten to, to look at history. So there's an idealizing of ideas. And, um, you know, so, so one thing is like we, it's kind of, you, you're not going to put a Nazi flag in your house. You know, there's recognition that, that that's, that's just wrong, but, but having a communist flag is somehow okay. Uh, and that, that's, it's strange because both of them were totalitarian regimes which committed democide, you know, the, the, the mass murdering of their people. And, and yet we have forgotten one side of the history. So there's, there's this kind of like almost idolizing of the one side of history. But the other side I do think is that, is that democracy is the expectations on democracy, which I was speaking about before, have, have expanded to beyond what it is. So it's now not just negative freedom, it's positive freedom. And, and no state can possibly achieve all of that. So then it gets labeled that democracy has failed. Um, and that's especially pertinent to South Africa. And I think that we in the academia have a role to play. So I've started to teach now in terms of, of what are the different regimes so that you can distinguish between them. Um, and also, what are the benefits of democracy? We need to start arguing what does democracy actually offer, you know, in terms of the freedoms that actually it does eventually, I mean, this, the research shows this, with, in bringing negative freedom, it allows people to attain their positive, um, their positive freedoms without, so it's actually one of the most prosperous type of societies, economic societies that you can have for people. And we start, we need to start actually teaching again, what is democracy and what is its benefits? The case for democracy. I, I should just add too, though, it's also very important to get beyond the abstract because a lot of what the cultural socialists will do is they'll pervert the meaning of the word freedom. They'll say, well, we need to have identity politics to give people freedom, right? So they'll, or to give them democracy. To be more democratic, we have to have quotas. You know, so it's also about pushing back against the misuse of these terms. Yeah. So a really powerful point to end on. In fact, it was one of the notes I made to bring up is the contest of language and how the Democratic Republic of North Korea is also democratic. So um, thank you very much. I like the point that we ended on, on promoting democracy and on political education, which is, of course, the, the main mission of the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Please have a look at the events that we've had previously. Uh, we'd love to see you again. Nicola and Eric, it was an absolute pleasure listening to you for an hour. 
And I hope very much that's the basis for future discussions because we've really only scratched the very surface of this huge topic. And I expect that we are going to see a lot of publications coming out in the near future that analyzes further as we try and work out how we deal with the issue of cultural socialism as an emergent property. Good. So thank you very much. Uh, I hope that you have a lovely day. And uh, until the next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Thanks Eric. Thanks, Michael and Chris. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.